Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk O'Bear. I'm John Birdsall. How you doing, Kirk? I'm doing all right. I'm doing just fine, as a matter of fact. Yeah? Um, was, uh, I was Christmas. Oh, it was fun, I guess. Uh, I think everybody knows I'm not as big of a fan as you are. So I'm assu- what? I'm assuming you had a you had a great Christmas. I'm assuming I went to the North Pole and uh, helped make toys, and um, yeah, so it was great. <laughs> well, that's good to know. Um, I, for one, I'm always happy when the holidays are over. You know, not that I'm a Scrooge or Bah Humbug or anything like that. Just that. It's very disruptive <laughs> for the things that we're trying to get done, you know, in life. Well, I- now, listen, Grinchy, um, just just take a little break and that's look at it as a break. Look at it as a little mm-hmm. vacation, you know, you don't have to go crazy yeah. on presents and have all the stress of all that stuff. You know, you don't have to buy into all that, um, you know, and just have a little break. You know, you got you got a little break. You went to North Carolina and yeah. Yeah, I did. I had a little break. That's true. Okay. Um, All right. Well, I don't know if you heard this, but the Wisconsin legislature is moving ahead with an effort to have a constitutional state constitutional amendment that would affect how bail is granted. This has been talked about for years in various different forms. And in fact, the statutes were changed several years ago to reflect some of these same ideas. And here's another example of really the idea behind putting something uh, in the form of a vote to voters to change the Constitution is designed so that it's much harder to undo in future generations of the legislature. So spell it out. What's the proposal? Well, Sure, I'll tell you. It's basically um, this idea that the Constitution would have a provision in it that would require court officials to consider a defendant's risk to public safety when setting bail. And as we always and this point is, out, this is the talking point for Judge correct. Doro in her uh, quest to be on the Supreme Court. Yeah, okay, right. Go and ahead, it sorry. all stems from the Darrell Brooks Jr. trial, who, as we all know, had posted only a thousand dollars bail. Um, Two days before the parade where he, you know, killed six people um, and was sentenced to life in prison. So the the idea behind the statutory provisions that exist right now, and at least uh, you have to look at what the Constitution says. And then there are things in the statute that also add to that. But the Constitution itself right now only reflects that bail is supposed to be set as a means to ensure that the person returns to court. And that's it. In fact, the constitution says that that's the only consideration. There are statutory provisions, which give the court authority to consider other things um, in order to quote unquote, protect the community. But those are supposed to be things that are non-monetary conditions of bail. So what this provision would do is it would put it right into the state constitution that the court in setting a dollar figure can consider the defendant's risk to public safety. And really the way it's probably going to be worded here is that they want a, to- a quote unquote totality of the circumstances approach. And whenever we hear that term used in yeah. the law, what it really means Come on. is that there are, there are no standards. That's really what they're saying is that right. it's, it's, you know what? I had a law professor who talked about things like, you know, discretion and, and totality and, um, and then he wrote the word whim on the mm-hmm. uh, chalkboard. 
and he says, and it's the totality of the circumstances. And he just he doesn't say it, but he just points to the word whim. It's like <laughs> it's under you know, it's like the whim of the judge. So, um, you know, here, you know what's interesting. You know what's interesting is that um, the Constitution, the original Constitution and the Bill of Rights, shortly thereafter, um, were were very concerned with those that are accused, right? And and in the last sixty years, since the Warren Court, really, there's been this huge push by conservative jurists and activists to um, push back on that, which confounds, it just completely confounds me because it seems like they would be in favor of that because it's a pushback against government. And now we've got Marcy's Law, which is part of the Wisconsin Constitution, and now this, and they're trying to constitutionalize their um, uh, their policy points um to, you know, to, to systematize uh, conservative, um, you know, dreams about how things should be, and you know, I, I, I well, don't know. It and just, I'm not even it just sure seems this is the, it is coming from conservatives. You're correct. That's where this is emanating from. But I'm not even sure that it's really a conservative issue. I think this is just easy pickings. Um, you know, where someone can claim that they did something. Look, I got this. I proposed this thing that resulted in a constitutional amendment, which will protect the public and make babies safe and everything else. Um, mm-hmm. So, but that I do think that that's the spirit behind it. Is that if it's if it's actually in the constitution? Here's the other thing: it's when it goes to the voters. First of all, there's <clears throat> the process by which uh, a constitutional amendment is um, enacted. And we know that there's been litigation all over the country, actually, as it relates to Marcy's law and that process and how it occurred. So I assume there's a risk here. Well, there's probably an even bigger risk here that that same process will impact defendants because this is something that relates directly to individual freedoms, like one's status, one's custody status. And we all know, you know, I know that the reason why the current provision in the Wisconsin Constitution is that monetary consideration should only be applied as a means to ensure a person's future appearance in court and not anything else is so that we don't have a society where rich people are able to bond out and poor people aren't. I mean, that's really right. why it's there. That's what right. it's supposed to do. And, even, say, hey, and okay. even though it's worded that, worded that way, it's not reality. Right. You know, right. So, I mean, there's, you know, there's thousands this of people issue, is this, that can't afford $500. Right. <laughs> and that, that always amazes me. Like, how does a court commissioner or a judge just out of thin air come up with a number? I mean, I I know they have to. That's not like there's any other way to do it. But imagine a, they, imagine a bill. Imagine a, a chalkboard with the word whim on it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and I know we've talked about it many times on this show, in fact, that the process by which someone's freedom or you know, confinement status based on mere allegations that come from nowhere, but the prosecutor's office on, on word that come from words on paper, um, you know, determines someone's status. And in almost every case, when someone's in custody and they can't bond out, they lose their job, they lose their ability to earn a living. They, 
you know, they're in a confined, they're basically being punished before they've been convicted of anything. And that's become the norm that, and that's, that's why that provision in the constitution is there is. So it isn't the norm. Um, well, but, normalizing things is a very important concept. For example, normalizing, you know, mass incarceration. And, um, you know, I'm reading right now, I'm reading uh, Professor O'Hare's book on um, the Wisconsin's bill up to uh, mass incarceration. And in 1973, there was about 2,300 prisoners. And that in the Wisconsin state prison system, and that number had been held steady for decades. And I even remember as a kid hearing that on the news. And, you know, and to me, as a kid, you know, I was like, wow, that's a lot of people. It's 10 times that. We've, we've done it, we've, we've increased our population 10 times since 1973. Hmm. And, and it's normalized. Like, people, just, we expect to have 23,000 prisoners. That's just what it is, you know? And, uh, and so... Now we're normalizing, you know, Marcy's law, and now this, and so who knows what's next? I don't know. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a weird pendulum. This is still pushback from the Warren Court, I think. It is. What's going to happen is is that by putting this to voters, you'll see a referendum, or you know, do you approve of this? And it'll be worded in such a way that ninety nine point nine percent of voters will say, sure, that sounds good. You know, um, uh-huh. you know, do you think that the court should be able to consider things such as a person's violent past or blah, 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 or uh, the totality of the circumstances in setting cash bond? Who's going to say no? I mean, we all know the reasons why that's a bad idea, but and they don't know gonna, it, means, it means whim. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But it's it's actually a very complicated philosophical topic that you know, no disrespect to the voters, but I think that's why um, it's it's being presented in that way. Because when you have a constitutional amendment, it's virtually impossible to undo it. It's supposed to be hard to make an amendment to the Constitution, but it's even harder to undo it. So we have to take a break, dude, but we will be right All right. We are back with more criminal defense. Well, legal defense, but criminal defense. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we really mean when we say legal defense. We mean criminal defense. It's just, yes, yes, it sounds yes, better yes. to say legal defense. You know, I've always wondered, you know, like, what does that even mean? Legal defense. I like, is there such a thing as a non legal defense? I mean, there, I there is. I just um, say defense. <laughs> we've watched non legal defenses uh, all about the 2020 election. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that way, that way. Gotcha. Um, um, another big story in the news. I don't know. Do you want to talk any more about this uh, constitutional? No, I no. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, another big story in the news. Uh, a woman uh, from Monroe, um, which apparently, well, she's been charged in Lafayette County. That's one of those counties that's out that way. Um, she's been charged uh, southwest with, of Madison for those um, un, right, un, right, right. unaware. That, that's what I said. That way. It's that way. You can't see where I'm pointing, <laughs> but I'm pointing that way. Um, so she's been accused of poisoning her 70-year-old husband. Now, she's 50 and he's 70. But um, Gary Chapin, who is a veterinarian, was allegedly poisoned three times during July and August of last year by 
his wife apparently putting barbiturates that were meant for animals into his coffee. And at one time, he actually slipped into a coma after drinking his coffee. And <clears throat> I believe that one time after that, he still was allowing her to serve him up, you know, his coffee in the morning for some reason. <laughs> and uh, so he didn't die. But there's an odd little twist here is that she at one point um, had sent there was a no contact order while the case was pending. Um, while it was under investigation and she sent him a suicide note and attempted suicide and was not successful and lived. And then they're like, Oh, okay. We're going to charge you with violating a restraining order while we're on top of it. Cause you sent a suicide note to now. So she denies that she did any of this. Um, it's interesting because, uh, you know, this is kind of one of those cases where I've seen this quite a bit, where if it comes down to what's in a person's system, now think about that. Um, he's a veterinarian, and I'm, I, I don't know anything about the case other than what's in the paper, but barbiturates, which can be um, abused, that can be a drug of abuse, right? Veterinarian mm -hmm. who would Absolutely. have access to that kind of thing uh, regularly. Who's to say that he wasn't just, you know, popping pills that were meant for cats and dogs? I mean... You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, there's something going on here with the, you know, ownership of the house. There was a quit claim deed that he signed over, which is kind of weird because if they're married, that's probably not really necessary or anything like that. But anyway, this, this just smacks of that kind of case where, you know, we see prosecutors and especially law enforcement that get their hands on a juicy case like this. And they love to. Especially you know, in a small imagine. county. Yeah, the, the worst case scenario is definitely true. Um, wow, I'm I'm almost done with this book um, by Keith Larson, and I don't know if you remember him. He's the guy that wrote Devil in the White City. Um, really, really okay. good book. But anyway, it's about the fact that um, the Marconi machine that was the first wireless broadcast system that could relay messages across the Atlantic, but also from boats that were, uh, you know, en route. And the um, fact that the probably the most significant transocional um, Marconi gram that was sent had to do with the captain of a boat identifying the suspect in a murder case that had occurred in London. Um, and the, they called him the Dr. Seller murder. And uh, anyway, it was a doctor that uh, they found the remains of somebody in his basement. And it coincided when his life had his wife had supposedly left town to be with another man. And they never really were able to determine other than very circumstantial evidence, even the gender of the remains in the basement. But they through very, very <laughs> primitive, you know, turn of the century style um, chemistry um, experiments, including using a cat as a, as a subject to see um, what, what poisons were found in the tissues. I mean, I'm reading about it is so primitive the way that they went about doing this and he denied it left and right. And there was really, yes, there were some human remains in what appeared to be human remains buried in the basement, but there was never any, any way to identify who it was. And, 
uh, anyway, the guy ended up getting convicted mostly based on circumstantial evidence and he was hung, uh, you know, by the neck till dead in England. Um, so anyway, the book's about how the fact that, uh, the technology that had been emerging at that time is part of what led the police to be able to catch him when he was supposedly on the run by trying to take a ship from England to Canada. But it just reminded me of this because it's really cool to, when you see, especially this narrator, he's talking about how they put these pieces together. Like it was a really, you know, um, inventive and creative way of catching the killer. And every mm-hmm. time I hear the conclusions they made, I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> that yeah. that doesn't sound right. But right, but it's like the totality. It's the, as you add the things up, and as they accumulate, a, a number of seemingly innocent things can be argued to be um, significant because of the cumulative effect of it. And we see a lot of cases go that way. I mean, um, another aspect of this that was really weird is that there was a piece of tissue that they claimed uh, had a scar on it. And the supposedly dead woman um, had a scar, but later they determined that it actually wasn't scar tissue, even though that had been part of the trial. So he attempted to get a new trial on that basis, as well as some other things didn't work. They still hung him. They're like too bad. Um, But interestingly, there has been continued research in this case that happened in, you know, 19, 1909, um, even as recently as a couple of years ago, when there were efforts from various, um, oh, I guess, forensic uh, integrity type organizations that want to have access to the actual DNA material to do further testing with the technology that we have now. And Scotland Yard has been unwilling to do that. Um, there was there've been several different aspects of this case that have been reported over the years that really strongly suggest that Dr. Crippen, he's the guy that, um, you know, supposedly did this is very likely innocent. Um, but you know, this is back when someone would get arrested, tried well, in about four, four months and then hung about yeah. two months after, you know? Oop. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it's old, you know, it's an old story. Um, and, you know, I, oh, geez, <laughs> we've had clients like this, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really weird how <laughs> that, that the craft of putting, of stitching facts together in such a way that it fits your narrative, you know, is something that, um, you know, it continues to go. So I know you got to address something. I'll just keep vamping here for a minute. Okay. You feel free to sounds good. You feel free to do that. But anyway, the the um, this author is is excellent because he talks about a lot of like lot true of, like, crime type crime situations. situations. And, and, and although and the although spin on spin it is on very it much very so, so that it's that um, almost as if to say that, in spite of the fact that this was the early 1900s, the the technology available. available was was presented, presented as state of the art well it was state of the art right it's just, it's just, it's just a long, time, long ago. time ago and that, and that um, um the, the ingenuity, ingenuity and tenacity of the investigators are what resulted in, in the conviction that occurred and another thing okay, is that so this was a case that was that was widely, widely publicized, publicized all over. All over the I mean, people were following this on a daily basis in the newspapers, and every development, every development with the with investigation, the investigation 
as far as, as, far as even suspicion, suspicion, even things that were being uncovered, were being reported, you know, practically, practically as, they, as happened they happened before any trial, trial happened. happened. So, so the entire, the entire world, world, you know, much like an O.J. Simpson, Simpson type, type situation, situation, they were watching, they were watching and forming, forming opinions about all of this. And it's another example of how there's a very, very questionable verdict. And, you know, again, again. He denied it. I, you know, I don't know that that really matters much because I think it's pretty common that someone that's accused of something very serious or denied it. Why not? I mean, that's I mean, kind of like human nature. nature. Um, so it's not so surprising that someone does. But, but, you know, when you know, you're just when you're looking, just looking at, at the fact that there were all these odd little facts, facts that, that, that may have meant something or, or not enough in the individual parts and pieces when they're stitched together in such a way by the ability to paint an error, to add that level of subjective Desire, desire to see, see crime. crime. Now, obviously, now, obviously something, something happened. happened. You know, they're still not even sure that the remains that were found were actually human because they didn't even have that technology back then. It was still speculation as to all, as to all that. Well, anyway, time to take a break. We'll be, we'll right, be back. right back. Welcome back. Um, John, did you watch the Monday best. Night I did not, but, you know, um, I talked to several people that were watching live, and uh, that was just. Wow. I was watching you know? live. It was, well, okay. I, I got to say. that's your team. That is well, my one team. Demar Hamlin, safety, number three. Um, But as you probably know, uh, he is conscious now. Well, I mean, at least as of the recording of this show. I mean, he's he's improving. Let's put it that way. Um, And it's still a little bit uncertain as to whether the you know, the full impact of what happened here is going to result in, um, I mean, it looks like he's going to survive, but they're not sure about how well he's going to recover on the whole thing just because it's so um, out there. But, you know, it's really interesting to see in the world of sports where there's competition, you can see good sportsmanship and um, the fact that acknowledgement that this is it's really just a game and that life and death matters a whole lot more when people come together i mean you know the bills are going to be playing the patriots uh you know in their next game and patriots uh and I, I think all of uh boston if i'm not mistaken had uh the lights on all their buildings with the bills colors you know and they were sending out um messages like you know prayers and hopes for uh, Damar Hamlin. Um, but I was <laughs> doing some reading earlier today and, you know, there's a lot of talk about how football is, you know, next to boxing, kind of one of the most violent things that we have as a spectator sport. And if you think about how it's evolved over the years with the equipment becoming more and more, you know, I guess, protective, it, tends to i think this is a good point and and a lot of rule changes and a lot of rule changes i mean we're we're trying to protect people we're trying to keep people from having traumatic brain injuries and things like that but the nature of the sport is such that you know it's entirely likely that all that padding in the helmets just encourages more more violent contact you know with the jarring and i mean a concussion is going to happen regardless of what you know kind of padding you have on and Who's the dude in the Dolphins that they figured out played like two games after he had a concussion, like after the fact. Um, <clears throat> but I was reading about the history of football, and I, I do remember reading something this about a while ago. But I was surprised, just in the context of these recent events, to remind myself that in a typical year, in the beginning 
of football becoming, you know, a sport. And it was primarily something that was born out of colleges, right? Harvard, Yale, that kind of thing. Right. right. And, and it looked very different. I mean, there was no passing for one thing. And it resembled rugby a lot more than it does now. And there was no padding. Um, you know, you've seen the old movies where they're wearing the leather, you know, helmets, and that's primarily right. to keep your ears from getting ripped off, but that's about it. Um, yeah, so I was no, going to say, it doesn't really do much, but... <laughs> doesn't do much, just keeps your ears on, attached to your head. But, you know, there was kind of a... On the one hand, there was, there was some self-regulation there, because if you don't have a bunch of padding, you're not going to be able to bolt into a... Per- you can't do head-to-head stuff without, you know, getting massively injured. But... Um, that being said, it was not uncommon. A typical year in the early years of football would involve roughly 20 to 25 fatalities of college wow. men men dying from playing the game of football in a year. I mean, that's about how, on average. That's that's what it was. And part of it also is that uh, the ru- there were so few rules back then that it really was a game of attempting – much more so than nowadays to injure players on the other team. I mean, that's, it's really what it was all about. And a lot of people who died playing football were after, you know, the rule where after someone's down and then you're not supposed to keep having the whole team pile up on the guy and, you know, you, right, the whistle right, blows right. and he's allowed to get up, you know, they didn't have that. So, you know, it was just like the entire team pounds on top of this person. They, they're allowed to kick him in the head and kick him in the stuff, all kinds of stuff, just like a complete lack of, of any standards that were around and it took quite a while, but one of the biggest innovations in football, believe it or not, that led to the death toll um, decreasing was uh, allowing the forward pass, believe it or not, because that wasn't part of the game. So by passing theoretically made it. So um, you didn't have these scrum like situations. Another thing that was allowed, you can imagine if this were the case now, Someone could have the ball and then you could have a bunch of people in front of that person interlocking arms as if they're like a, you know, a snowplow <laughs> and basically just like ram into the opposing team and like stop like all Game of that. Thrones or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. It was almost like medieval <laughs> warfare or something. But anyway, it's, you know, I think the thing that's this isn't necessarily an unusual situation. I think it's unusual that you know, healthy 24 year old kid with no history of anything apparently gets hit at just the right place at just the right time to cause his heart to go into fibrillation, which could happen to anybody. It doesn't matter whether you're healthy or unhealthy or whatever. It's sort of like, you know, how there's a certain area in your solar plexus that if you get hit just right, um, it can stop your breathing, you know? So mm-hmm. it, it's similar to that in the sense that it caused his heart the theory is it caused his heart basically to stop, um, even though it, it wasn't a, an organic weakness on his part or anything like that. So it could have happened to anybody. And I, I don't know if you saw the video, but it's really weird because he's like, he, he has the tackle and you can see the other player's head kind of go into his upper chest, right in his upper, right, right above the heart and to the, to the left. And, he gets up and kind of springs up like, okay, let's go on to the next play. And he stands still for a second and then zoom, just back, like lost consciousness. So and don't forget, dog- this is this is a 24-year-old, highly trained, professional athlete. 
Right. <laughs> right. 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 I right. mean, that's that's what blows my mind because, okay, you know, old guys like us or whatever, you know, it's like, okay, if somebody has heart problems, kind of expect that, you know, mm-hmm. you, you know, and we're certainly not going to allow ourselves to be hit with the ferocious yeah. force of a, like, a, you know, some defensive NFL player, obviously not. But when you're that young and that strong, you know, you don't think about heart problems. Right, right. And it really was, like I said, it wasn't like a a pre-existing heart condition of any kind. So apparently when your heart goes into fibrillation, in other words, it basically seizes and stops pumping. It takes about six seconds for your blood pressure to drop to zero. And when your blood pressure drops to zero, you you lose consciousness because it, there's not blood going to your brain. And that fits with the time. It was about six seconds after the hit that he's flat on his back. So I don't know. What do you think about people are saying like this, this particular event, just because it, it isn't even like the, the normal kind of injury we see where it's obvious. Like you see somebody, it's a compound fracture and it's gross and, or somebody gets a concussion or they, you know, whatever their knee gets twisted around and you go, okay. And that's like, Oh, that's part of the game. They'll recover. They give the thumbs up when they're getting carried off the field, everybody claps. But I mean, this was uh, an, maybe a freak incident, but you know, it just kind of highlights the fact that are we in the stone age when it comes to how we deal with these guys, this sort of like, uh, you know, how the world used to view, uh, <laughs> you know, stadium Roman sports with fight, fighting the tiger. It's, I don't know. I don't it's, think that, it's, it's probably, it's probably there's some equivalence, you know, I mean, we, we love the, we love the violent nature of the game. I mean, just like it's tackle, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, well, yes know, and no. I mean, if, I, we, if we, if we, if we wanted to avoid all injuries, we would have them wear flags and do flag football and right. nobody would watch and billions <laughs> of dollars would be lost. So, yeah, that's true. But um, I, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm not <coughs> hoping that someone gets hurt when I watch football. I'm hoping they don't, you know, uh, right. I mean, isn't that normal? You're not like, Oh boy, someone's gotten hurt. Yay. I mean, even if it's the other team, I'm like, Oh God, I hope he's okay. Maybe you yeah. don't want them to get hurt, but you kind of appreciate hard hits. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of like, at least I don't well, like know a good sack that knocks the quarterback down yeah. really hard. You're like, yeah, I know. Yeah. That's it's part of the game. I get it. But, and it's a physical game. Well, you know, I think I mentioned this to you a while ago, but I went to a hockey game recently and I'm, I hadn't been to a hockey game in quite a while, but I used to go when I was a kid all the time in Buffalo. So I'd go to a Sabres game and you could count on at least once in every game, there being one of those fights where they took their gloves off and and then they got to come out uh, to bring the Zamboni in extra time to get the blood off the ice. I mean, it was, it was was just like, if you, if you remember the 1970s movie slap shot. Oh, I do. I remember it being a movie. I don't remember much about it, though. Oh, 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 oh. There was this, um, these uh, three characters. They were triplets, right? And the Hanson brothers. And their thing was to go out there, and then whenever something you know, didn't happen, happened that they didn't like, they would just start beating people up. 
And that was like that was like a thing in the movie, right? And it was like everybody's cheering, you know. It's sort of like, you know, WrestleMania or something, but Yeah. Know. Well that's all fake, so you know. All right, we gotta take a break. Uh, we'll be right back. We are back with more legal defense. Boy, uh, I'll tell you, um, crazy times uh, that we live in, in terms of um, you can't tell what's going to happen. So in Wisconsin, we're surrounded by legal weed states, right? Right. I mean, literally surrounded. And and yet, while Wisconsin has historically seen been seen as sort of like a liberal haven with progressivism and uh, fighting Bob LaFollette and, you know, the Wisconsin idea and all that stuff. And all that's true and it's great, but um, it was, you know, the last, uh, the, you know, the last couple of decades, really, even more, um, has been a real conservative wave. And yet now, <laughs> is it swinging back? because the Wisconsin State Senate is about to approve medical marijuana. Uh, something I know that you, in particular, have a keen interest in. Not marijuana per se, but its legalization. Yeah, yeah. It's a project that I've been working on for nearly 30 years. Um, I'm on the... Um, uh, well, I was on the board of directors for Wisconsin Normal. In fact, I was the... I'm a past president of that organization, uh, but I've also been on the National Legal Committee for National Normal since 1999, um, and I've worked on quite a few cases that went all the way up to the Supreme Court on these very issues. So, yeah, it's been something that I, it's just because my entire uh, remember I used to prosecute cases in the military for people that smoked a joint and you know, had them thrown in jail and thrown out of the service and stuff. And I thought it was, was that, was that while they were still doing zero tolerance? Yeah. Well, it still is zero tolerance (laughs) for, uh, you mean for marijuana or do you mean for anything? Uh, anything. I just remember in the eighties that started, you know, um, yeah. And I didn't know if I didn't know how, like, like how much that, carried on yeah you're right and and really when we use that term what it's referencing is the fact that um no exceptions no you know if someone did something and you can prove they did it all the things that make that person a good person who did a bad thing don't matter you know that you can't you can't give anybody a pass for anything is really the idea and that's actually a concept that you know personally um, I understand why it is that way in the military, but it, but it, again, it comes down to the fact that in the military, every single person, no matter what their personal merit is, is disposable by its nature. I mean, it has to be that way. That's you know because people get killed in combat, and you have to have somebody else who's ready to um, take the reins. So that you know that's been a philosophy in, in military law for a long time that. You know, when you try to say, hey, this guy had a great career, he did a lot of great things, he was wonderful, he did all this wonderful stuff. Yeah, that's true. And maybe that will lighten the sentence a little bit, but it still doesn't prevent somebody from getting booted out, you know, with an unfavorable service characterization. But going back to this issue, you know, I'm starting to wonder if this is just something that... um people are getting tired of fighting about (laughs) because marijuana because yeah yeah like it's just to the point now where you know 
I think that a lot of law enforcement folks, in spite of their very um, biased and uh, pointed training to be foot soldiers in the war against drugs, you know, with all and all of the the mantra and the, and the uh, really propaganda that goes with that. I mean, it's shocking if you ever see any of the training things that they go through, like how marijuana will make you sterile and will make you crazy, homicidal, <laughs> and probably a communist, you know? And when I was in, when they, I was in sixth know, they, grade, they, we watched movies and somebody's and they were holding a hot dog and it was a normal hot dog with mustard and stuff. And then they smoked marijuana and then they saw like this little doll and they were freaking out and screaming, you know. So yeah. we were like, we were like, even in sixth grade, we were like, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah, uh, but that's part of what. Uh, if you really think about how the over dramatization of, you know, reefer madness, and it'll, you know, it, it'll irre- irreversibly drive you insane if you take one puff off of a cigarette you know a marijuana cigarette um and then when people figured out that that's just not true um it really kind of had the backlash effect and you know it's almost a joke now remember back in the dare days you know dare not to do drugs um people that were told all that stuff and and now you know to realize that a lot of that was just a, a, a bunch of hype now he, here's the thing and I suspect that law enforcement folks here in Wisconsin are getting tired of dealing with the fact that every single state around Wisconsin, it's perfectly legal to buy it. And then what a lot of people are doing, I imagine, is, you know, they're going to Chicago or they're going to Michigan or they're going to whatever they're doing. And they go into a shop and then they're coming back with some of the uh, wares, you know, and. I get it, you know, if you want to hold on to this arcane approach to things, but eventually it's just exhausting, you know, that if that's what we're going to spend so much of our law enforcement resources on with with something that is. uh, I imagine some law enforcement is sick of it, but I think others um, in small count, small border counties, um, you know, oh yes. Almost look at like I can it, think it's of one sport. in particular. Yeah, it's a sport. You know, Marinette. Is that what you're thinking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I guess. But I'll it could say be it out loud. sure. Yeah, it, that one. It, That's the one. Yeah, it could be that. There's so many. You know, um, yeah. but I don't know. Uh, you know, it, it, what's really interesting is traffic stops and searches uh, because in legal weed states, you smell marijuana. Well, you can't really search. Right. Right. Unless they're driving and they think they're impaired or something, you know. Well, and even then, it it would turn into your typical. Yeah. I mean, like in a drunk driving scenario, a full search of the car isn't typically necessarily part of the the uh, the equation. You know, it's like, okay, if the person's impaired by something, put them through some field sobriety tests, arrest them, lock up the car, you know, ask where they want it towed to that kind of thing. Um but anyway, so we're we're getting close to the end here. I just wanted to quickly comment on uh, the very strange process of attempting to elect a Speaker of the House. It's huh. been going on. Now, I will put a caveat out there. The show is being recorded ahead of time. We're not live right now. 
on Saturday morning. We recorded it earlier in the week, but as of the date of this recording, we were, uh, I think, what, nine, past ten, nine, ten, 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 ten votes, ten attempts. So you can probably tell what day it is. It's Thursday night. Um, and I, I mean, I, I don't understand logically speaking, what the point of doing this chaos. over and over and over and over chaos. Again? It's chaos. They want to stir okay. chaos. You know what? You know what would be fascinating. You could play so many academic games here, but the Constitution does not say that the Speaker of the House has to be a member of the House. I know that, and a so lot of people have somebody, speculated somebody about nominate? making. Go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say. You know, I was. Other people have speculated about like, well, let's nominate Trump. I think you know, somebody did. And, and they would happened. be, and he would be third in line to the presidency. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, it's just the way it goes. I think there was one nomination, and I think one vote for that. It's in one of those ten or more things okay. that happened. I didn't follow <laughs> it that closely, but... Um, yeah, I mean, it is, not, it is not entertaining television. I tell you, when you're like 147, you know, they got to go through the whole list, well, and, you know? here's here's the argument for for a non-member speaker is because of the almost insane uh, divisions that are going on right now. Um, If we could find, (laughs) I know this is a pipe dream, but if we could find a George Washington that everybody agrees is like stand-up guy, you know, it's like super patriot. and um, Cares more about uh, his country than any party he's in. Yes, right? something like that. Um, because oh, wait, that they didn't have parties then. They didn't have parties then. And, and you know, <clears throat> I don't know who that person is. I don't know. Uh, that everybody could agree on, or at least most people. But, God, we need that. We need that Mel bad. Gibson? Yeah. <laughs> You know, I think he's a I patriot. Think, you know, I, I, yeah, I would entertain the idea of uh, Andrew Yang. Sure. Um, because of his third party efforts. But anyway, I know we're running out of time, but yeah, well, we are. we'll just have to see what happens. Yeah, I guess we will. All right. Well, tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.